Hello again, guys. It is Matt Whitmore and Kerry Smarsden of Fitter Food Radio, and we are episode number 11. Can you believe it? 11. There's not many when you look at some of the podcasts out there. It's big. We're to double <laughs> figures. They're coming thick and fast now. Soon it'll be 111 before you know it. Episode 11, and we've got an absolutely fantastic guest on uh, this episode. Her name is Jo Gamble. Um, she's an absolute genius in <laughs> Keris's eyes. Um, and for that reason, I'm going to hand over to Keris to do a bit more of a, a more interesting intro than me. So, Keris. Well, um, yeah, I'm really excited that we've got um, Jo on the show today. She is actually a lecturer at my college, uh, College of Naturopathic Medicine. Um, she's actually based in the Birmingham College, but came down to London to do the um, lectures on nutrition and cancer. Um, I was absolutely blown away by her story, her knowledge, and her, her qualifications. The list just keeps growing, and it's, it's already endless. Um, and she was just so inspirational. Um, I actually attended the same lecture two or three times, just to hear the information over and over again, uh, because it was simply one of the best, uh, well, one of the best days at college that I actually had um, in my final year. And that's not me just, uh, sounds like I'm being a bit of a teacher's pet because she's actually on the call with us. But yeah, she, it is... she doesn't mark your exams. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and I know there's several other um, students that would, would say exactly the same as me. Um, so yeah, I suppose we should hand over really and let Joe um, tell everyone a bit about yourself, tell them your story and how you came to study nutritional therapy. Well, hi guys, and thank you for inviting me on. Um, my story, well, it kind of stems back right back to um, when my little girl, who's now just turned 11, <clears throat> was 19 months old, and I was a bit oblivious to you know, little girls getting ill and, and not quickly being fixed. And that all changed the day that she woke up with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, came as a massive blow to us, got her out of a cot one morning and she just suddenly stopped walking. Um, so, so what is that exactly? It, it's, so it's, it's, it's rheumatoid arthritis, which is what you kind of think of arthritis as old people. And my naivety back then, I really thought it was an old person's disease, but it was in children. And, and wow. actually the prevalence of uh, arthritis in children is one in a thousand. Um, hers is referred to as idiopathic, which means of no known origin, which means it's not there's no genetic factors involved in it whatsoever. It's just bad luck, really. Um, oh. And uh, we we embarked on the medical route, um, honestly thinking that they were they were going to fix her. That's what I, that's what I thought. We spent ten days in hospital when we were undergoing numerous tests and actually finally got this diagnosis. It actually takes six weeks to get a diagnosis, just in case it's a bit of a random flare that's going to go away on its own accord but it didn't um so her first trip to surgery just before she was two years old just three weeks before her second birthday was to inject many joints with uh, corticosteroids we were told that the the likelihood of these working was about a life of about six to eight months. So we kind of thought, right, okay, we're going to put her through a general, but you know, we'll get get a, some positive, you know, relief from this. And just uh, six weeks later, her body was back being affected by pain, um, inflammatory response. Her joints were were stiff, were unmovable. So we continued this journey for probably another eight months where every four weeks we took her to surgery, she would have the injections and we'd get two to three weeks relief and then she would flare again. It got to the point where psychologically this was having a massive impact on her, not to mention physiologically. Um, and sadly, just before her 
third birthday, we were given the, the news that she needed to embark on a chemotherapy regime to shut her immune system down. And in wow. shutting her immune system down, it would almost like wipe out the memory cells which were attacking herself. So we started chemotherapy just before she turned three. Um, as you can imagine, with chemotherapy regime, it isn't given in the same dose as it's given to kids with cancer, but it's given for a much longer period of time. So she actually spent four years on it. Oh, wow. um, during that four years, her immune system was was absolutely bombarded with, you know, infection. She she very quickly got her first bout of pneumonia just after her third birthday. So I think three months into it. That was followed by a fungal pneumonia. It was followed by dipsum bar virus, followed by superbugs, followed by glandular fever. You know, you name it, we got it. Mm. Um, and we were in and out of hospital. We just used to spend our lives. You know how pregnant ladies keep a bag by the door not knowing when their baby's going to come? Well, we just used to keep a hospital bag by the door because we didn't know whether we'd wake up in the, in the hospital or oh. what, what was going to happen. So um, we'd been on chemotherapy for about six months when I, I made the realisation when she had fungal pneumonia that I was going to lose her and I was going to lose her not to her disease but to the drugs and the side effects of the drugs. So I found an amazing naturopath in London, uh, travelled to London from the Midlands area with my very sick child and kind of sat there and went, you've got to help me. You know, the, the hospital I felt were, were almost killing her because of the, the, the drugs. So he he started to do functional testing with her and look at all of the deficiencies or potential excesses going on within her body that could have perpetuated a disease as aggressive as her disease was. He put on a massive supplement regime, which a child of just three was so challenging, um, you know, because she couldn't swallow tablets. And I was trying to hide these horrible powders into her food. And, <laughs> and it was it was it was near on impossible. But every day I did it. Every day I used to lie in bed in the morning, kind of thinking, "Can I start the day today?" Because I know I've got to get her down there and start giving her all of these supplements, which I knew in my heart of hearts would work. But I was also very scared that. Without the, giving them her was was so detrimental, but without them, I could lose her. So I was in a bit of a catch twenty two situation. And was it these supplements in addition to the medication still as well at this point? Absolutely. Yeah. At this point, we still were on the pharmaceutical drugs yeah. that we were on. So, um, so we were doing the two alongside each other. Um, they actually told us by the time she was five years old, she would be wheelchair bound because her joints were fusing. So she was, you know, her joints were becoming immobile completely. Um, and they also told us that she would be on chemotherapy for the rest of her life. Well, you know, I, I'm the sort of person that somebody tells me um, A is going to happen, I will make B happen just because that's the sort of personality I've got. There was no way I was going to let my then three-year-old be in a wheelchair by the time she was five. So we moved heaven and earth. We continued with naturopathy. We used craniosacral therapy. We used homeopathy. We used, gosh, every type of therapy, um, remedial massage, reflexology. I just, I'd given up work by this point. I just used to spend my whole days traveling around to appointments, both both sort of pharmaceutical appointments, so hospital appointments, and also natural appointments. She was massaged on a daily basis to keep wow. her joints moving. Wow. Um, and we, we were, we were, you know, we were winning. And um, by the time she turned six, that was a hard four years, but we got her through chemotherapy. Oh, um, she started dancing at the age of four and still dances to this day. She's just had her 11th birthday. So, so much of them telling me that she would be wheelchair bound because she does acrobatics, she does oh, wow. uh, tap dancing, ballet dancing, That's amazing. you know, competition classes. 
Um, it's been a long, hard drive, but it's it's been absolutely worth it. But I was reading every book that was out there because I needed input. I needed to help the situation. And whilst we had the support of this naturopath, it's, he was great in that he understood disease processes. What he didn't get was that kids are not just little big people if that makes sense yeah, yeah. He, he gave me a regime of like 38 supplements a day and and <laughs> you know she couldn't swallow tablets he yeah. was getting me to gargle hydrogen peroxide to try and save her tonsils and she couldn't gargle and you know he didn't understand that and he wasn't a father himself yeah so i um I decided that I was going to go back to college and study. Now, my original profession, prior to giving up work to care for Georgia, was a behavioural therapist specialising in autistic children. So I found the College of Naturopathic Medicine, and luckily they had a local college in Birmingham, which is nearby to me because there was no way I was going to be able to travel or stay away or anything like that. And I started studying. Now, that little girl seemed to have this intuition that whenever mum had exams, then she would spike a temperature. And every time I had exams, I would do my revision with my books up an IV pump. Oh, because every time she was an inpatient. But it just made me stronger. It made me more determined to finish the course. And what my goal was, was to be able to put my skill as a nutritional therapist and as a behavioural therapist together yeah. and, and, and be able to join those together as core skills so not only could I tell people the education and the explanations and the science but I could actually make it doable for them so I graduated uh, just over five years ago now and I went straight into setting up my own practice but in my sort of last 12 18 months of college I met a guy who had been on a similar journey with his son who'd had a really aggressive form of cancer he'd raised a whole load of money for his son and and then went on to help other people's kids his son was in remission and, and I drew so much information from him we, he, he talked to me about the need to purify all her water he talked to me about the need to purify her air especially because she'd had this formal pneumonia we started juicing with her and I would syringe fresh organic juice into her throughout the course of the day you know we we, we got rid of all of our cookware we replaced all of our cookware we we got rid of our microwave oven you name it we turned heaven and earth uh, we, we bought every piece of equipment I think inevitable to man so I met this guy who basically taught me that I had to cover every aspect of her health, leave no stone unturned, which is exactly what he did with his son, and he managed to get his son into remission. And I was stunned by that. What I did is, is it's like I created a jigsaw puzzle, and each one of these pieces, you know, an air purifier on its own was not going to put my daughter in remission, but the air purifier combined with the organic diet, combined with the supplements, combined with the functional testing, you know, all be, became made my picture much, much clearer. So just after her sixth birthday, we actually got the news that she was disease-free and had remained disease-free for long enough to try a period without chemotherapy. And um, it's always quite scary when they come off chemotherapy because they run a really high risk of leukemia, which is ironic. Yeah. Um, the consultants didn't tell us this when she put when they put her on chemotherapy in the first place. But yeah, so you spend that next sort of 12 months with this great big breath held, thinking, whoa, are we going to end up with a new disease? But I knew deep heart in my heart that I was actually supporting her so well nutritionally um, that I wasn't going to allow that to happen. And I certainly didn't allow that to happen. What was your health so, like through all, through all this? Like, it must well, have been so I, stressful. <laughs> it was. Stress was a big driver for me, but I um, I looked after myself. You know, we changed the whole family's diet because, you know, I couldn't just take, you know, 
dairy and gluten and sugar out of hers and then us sit with cream cakes and, and drink comes a coke, you know, just yeah. that we, it was it had to be a whole we all had to check make embrace these changes. And of course as a nutritional therapist, by now I was I was qualified and started to realise that, you know, I needed to I needed to keep myself well because if not I wasn't gonna be able to maintain what I needed to do for her. So I took my passion from my daughter and nothing can give you more passion than working with, you know, or or supporting your own child when they're so desperately ill. The passion from this guy and together we set up our cancer charity. That charity is still running now and it's called Kicked Kids Integrated Cancer Treatment and it's all about supporting children and their families whilst they're undergoing chemotherapy or post-chemotherapy to minimise the side effects, to maximise the efficacy of the treatment and to hopefully prevent future relapses. So I work with them from a naturopathic point of view supporting them nutritionally and we, uh, we support some of the supplements that they're on. Later went on to work with a little boy through the charity, Alfie Goff, who had the same type of uh, neuroblastoma as the gentleman's son that I initially met. Um, So neuroblastoma is such a horrible cancer. And sadly, despite such hard work by his parents, we lost Alfie, as I've lost many children along the way. But his parents firmly believe that it was the support that they gave him nutritionally and through supplements that made his ending the best possible that anybody could ever ask for. Most kids who die of cancer are in a lot of pain. They're given high-dose medication. This little boy died at home with not so much as paracetamol for pain relief. And his parents can hold that in their heart and say, we didn't get the outcome we wanted, but... You know, our son didn't die in pain, and, and their last memories of him are not horrific. Oh. So they are decided that they wanted to uh, have a legacy to Alfie, um, and they set up, with my support, the second charity that I now run called the Alfie's Trust. So it's Alpha after Alfie Goff. Um, and that charity supports me to support families, so therefore these families get free nutritional therapy support. They also pay for the children all to have a uh, masticate inducer so that they can get lots of nutrients in through juice, pay for them to have a, a, a water distiller to eradicate all the toxins and a, um, an optimiser to remineralize the water so that these children have got the best possible chances of of making it through their treatment. And that's where I still go now. I'm still working for the Alfie Goff Trust, still a trustee of Kids Integrated Cancer Treatment. I've continued to push myself to the to the, the limits of, of education. Um, and just over two years ago, I embarked on a, a training course over in the United States with the Institute for Functional Medicine. And in just November, I found out that I was one of 124 worldwide and two UK certified functional medicine practitioners oh, wow. because I managed somehow in the madness of my life to pass all of my exams. She is a genius, Keris. <laughs> you were right. <laughs> and I've also, at the same time, I thought, why do one qualification in the US when you can do two? Um, (laughs) So at the same time, I also studied with the American Board of Anti-Aging Health Practitioners and I'm just completing my fellowship in integrative cancer. I think it's so important to be at the cutting edge of knowledge when you're working in such a, a field that requires you to have that level of education and also be able to express that level of education to not just to parents or to you know I don't just work with children I work with adults too but also to integrate that into the medical world I'm not saying that there isn't a place for 
medical intervention. Absolutely, there is. And do you know what? If I wake up tomorrow and I've got bacterial meningitis, I would be down at hospital demanding yeah. antibiotics. <laughs> what I feel, however, though, is as a society, we're over-medicated and we never consider the side effects of that medication. So whilst there is a need for, you know, intensive treatment for children undergoing chemotherapy, undergoing, you know, with the diagnosis of cancer, what I think that needs to be accepted is these children need support through diet, through lifestyle modifications and through supplementation. And I feel with all of my training and my personal experience that I'm definitely in a position to be able to give it to them. I love educating people. Am, am I right in thinking that uh, before, um, you know, you got the news of, you know, what had happened to your daughter when she was, uh, did you say she was 18 months? Mm-hmm. Um, you, yes. you, you You didn't have any qualification at all in, in this field? Not at all. Not it, at all. It's, it's amazing. It reminds me of that, um, you know, that film where that woman's brother goes to prison on a murder charge. Oh, and she trains to become a lawyer. And she trains to become a lawyer over like eighteen years or something silly to get him off of death row, and <laughs> and and she actually ends up doing it. It kind of reminds me of that story. It's an amazing story. Um, one thing I was going to ask, can you explain, um, so you went and studied uh, functional medicine, which um, I often mention that on the, the podcast is sort of where I think the future of nutritional therapy is going. How do you, how would you sort of explain that differs from, say, conventional medicine? What does functional medicine, uh, that approach, how does, what does it look at? Okay, so functional medicine is much more is a much more in depth uh, intervention that's looking not just at the symptoms. What happens in 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 Western society is you get ill and you go to doctors and they give you a pill to fix that ill. What they don't look at is what has caused that imbalance within that individual. So let's say, for example, depression. Depression is something that many people go to the doctors. What does the doctor offer? They offer antidepressants. Well, an antidepressant might make people feel temporarily better. However, as soon as you stop taking that antidepressant, if you haven't made any changes, the likelihood is that depression is going to come back. Whereas as a functional medicine practitioner, I'm looking at, well, what is the imbalance within the individual that has driven the symptom being depression? So, yes, I could go down the line of giving them a natural antidepressant, which don't get me wrong, I will sometimes do, but more what I'm interested in doing, and I might do that whilst I'm doing the more comprehensive bit, is I get my spade out, and I always tell people that's my biggest tool, and I dig really deep. And more what I'm interested in is I'm interested not at the leaves of the tree, which is the symptom, I'm interested in the trunk and even deeper at the roots. So in depression, it might be the cause or the the attributing factor to the depression is actually some sort of imbalance going on within the gut. So I might send my client off for a stool analysis, and I might show that they've actually got a bacterial infection within the gut, and that I need to kill off the bacterial infection, I need to repair the gastrointestinal membranes, and actually then we might be able to start to work on the symptoms of the depression. So it's all about depth. It's all about understanding where in the human body has gone wrong. And it's also about seeing the person as a whole person. I couldn't believe at one point my daughter had a rheumatologist, an opt 
ophthalmologist because um, juvenile arthritis is also linked to a autoimmune disease of the eyes. So she she has to see an ophthalmologist. She saw a neurologist because the medication caused her to have seizures. She saw an immunologist because her immune system was so low. She saw a urologist because she had recurrent urinary infections, and she saw a nephrologist, which is a kidney expert. I mean, you can't get much wow. closer anatomically to, from the urinary system to the kidneys, but yet she had two different consultants in charge of those. <laughs> and never, ever did all of those consult. Oh, I'm sorry, and a gastroenterologist because she had such a horrendous gastrointestinal issues because all the medication she was on. Never once did all of those doctors sit down and talk about her. They each saw their little bit of my daughter and, and that was the bit that they were working. Whereas as a functional medicine practitioner, we see the whole of that individual and we look at the whole of that person and how each of those systems within the body interrelate and how an imbalance in one can trigger an imbalance in another. It's, all, it's like a roller coaster effect. You know, think of it like dominoes. Once that first domino's gone down, there's no stop in the others. The human body has a similar effect. When one system goes out of balance, it's going to have a knock-on effect on so many other systems. And does, um, I mean, this, like, I am absolutely fascinated by all this, and, and we talk about it quite a lot, you know, sort of, you know, addressing root causes, looking at the person as a whole, and, and holistic health and nutrition, but does the Institute of Functional Medicine have plans to sort of make this approach, um, you know, sort of more widespread to raise awareness of it, you know, so people know that it's available to them as an alternative to conventional medicine? Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, I've now just so the Institute of Functional Medicine have just started their certification uh, program, which, well, it's been running for some time, but the first round of exams were in September. And I was lucky enough because I did my program intensively. So I, uh, in 22 months, I think I flew back and forth to the States about 11 times. Um, <laughs> I um, So it is now a certified program. So upon completion of quite a extensive examination, both both written exams and uh, case study approaches, uh, they are now certifying functional medicine practitioners, of which there's now, I think it's 124 in the world, took the first round or passed the first round of exams in September, and there's two of us in the UK. Wow. So it's a case of watch this space. Yeah. Um, I know there are many others now sort of following in, but I just want to be, I want to be the first, I'm that kind of person. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a bat bird. I, want, I just want to run. I, you know, <laughs> I haven't got time for walking. I'm worried about your adrenals. <laughs> and what about, um, so if you are um, working with, obviously you have um, clients that are children and adults with cancer, do you um, have communications with their oncologists as well? Do you sort of work alongside them around the treatments? Or? Absolutely, yeah. Um, when you've got an individual with cancer, child or adult, you are not their primary caregiver. Their primary caregiver is their oncologist or their, you know, their specialist. Um, I always open up avenues of communication, so I'm always happy to speak to the the oncologist, um, talk to them about what I'm doing, write to them, set share research with them because I think it's really important that they understand the science behind it. I have to say, not many of them are receptive to the work that I do. However, mm-hmm. I I do see movement in this, just simple things like one of the children that I'm working with that's got uh, or has had, she's in remission and has been now for uh, two and a half years, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very aggressive type of leukemia, and she required a bone marrow transplant. Now, I've been... I've been working with her since bone marrow. So when I started with her, she was she was in isolation, having high-dose chemotherapy, and then she was grafted with uh, bone marrow. Now, I've been 
very carefully, meticulously watching her vitamin D levels because there is lots of research out there, the association between vitamin D deficiency and cancer and leukemia. So I've managed to get her vitamin D levels to optimal and I'm, I'm constantly monitoring them and I, I keep them in a really close proximity at the optimum level for disease prevention without getting to a toxic load. I've got to, um, I've got to just ask, what would you say optimal is? Because I see so many different recommendations on that. Yeah, well, it, it does. It varies depending on the condition. But I look for, in, in cancer, about 100 nanomoles per litre. That's okay. sort of where I wanted her to sit. And I was sort of sitting there between anything between 90 and 105, 110. I'm happy with where she is. Obviously, it's going to fluctuate over the course of the year. Um, and her oncologist turned around to mum just before Christmas and said, um, her vitamin D levels, he said, You've been on her vitamin D levels for so long, haven't you? He said, why did your nutritional therapist know about vitamin D and I didn't? And I just just sort of sat there and went, well, that's because I've been doing the research in it. And, and, you know, you you have not yet picked up or only just picked up that vitamin D deficiency is associated with disease risk. So it's amazing to have that consultant turn around and kind of go, "Mm, you know what you're talking about before I know what I was talking about. That's amazing, isn't it? That's, yeah. You definitely need more. Speaking to friends and family about um, all sorts of things like statins, I feel like I could tell a few doctors and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a shame that it's got that way, but I suppose they don't have the time or, you know, and obviously there's... Or they don't have the training. I think yeah. that's a big part of it. Doctors only have to attend one non-compulsory lecture on nutrition. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it's not given by a nutritional therapist. So it's, you know... Their knowledge of nutrients is is so much poorer than our knowledge of nutrients. So I think what our job as nutritional therapists, functional medicine experts, whatever we are, is it's so much is about education. It's about educating the masses, educating you know the health professionals. And this is why I open up these avenues of communication, even if they shut the door. I've opened it up. You know that that. Uh, I never want to be accused of sort of doing something behind the scenes. So I'm happy to write to people. And I provide, you know, I provide research paper after research paper to them and explaining why I've taken gluten out of the diet if they've got an autoimmune disease or why vitamin D is so important or why, you know, let's let's consider that statins aren't essential, you know. And I, I just want them to understand the rationale behind my thought process. Do you find that, the, that on occasions you are dismissed and then the things that you suggest are sort of frowned upon by, you know, sort of doctors and oncologists? Yeah, I do. I very often, but more what I hear is uh, oncologists telling the patients, oh, that's just a waste of money. And I turn around and say to the client, you know, are you prepared to put a price tag on your house? And, you know, very often they're not prepared to listen to what, what you know, they, they listen to what their oncologist says with regard to medication, but they're very receptive to what I'm talking about. And I think when you've had as much experience in working in the field of cancer as I've had, then people people pick up on that. All of my business comes from referrals. I don't do any advertising whatsoever. That's and amazing. I think, you know, people hear my passion um, and are prepared to share it, and especially when they're getting results. And, you know, sadly working in the field that I specialise in, I do see people with all sorts of conditions. I would say about 30 to 35% of my caseload is, is cancer, uh, which is a way bigger caseload than many nutritional therapists would be prepared to take on. Yeah, definitely. Um, but they, you know, I do sadly lose clients because of the nature of the disease. But I also make a difference. And even those that 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 
I lose, if I can make a difference to their ending or give them a longer period of life that's good quality life, I still feel as though I've done a good job. It's it's really interesting what you just mentioned about um you know that you have that higher percentage because I think actually most nutritional therapists sort of almost run a mile because it, it, cancer is so frightening and and so much is unknown yeah. and um you did actually say uh, I think you were asked in in the lecture that I attended somebody said are you scared of cancer um and you said you weren't scared of cancer and I thought that was amazing because given your experience and and the fact that you've lost patients um I know I personally would be I'd find it quite hard I'd feel scared. Uh, you know that you know you're not always going to win that battle, but um, one thing I was going to ask—it's a, re- a reality. So, yeah. but you know, I'm prepared. I'm still prepared to make that journey. I'm still prepared to carry that baton and and be one of the you know the leading in that field. It's amazing. And but what would you sort of um, say to our listeners? You've mentioned a few things already, like for example, clean water and vitamin D. But how do you think people could lead? anti-cancer lives because um i think there's so much people can do that they don't even realize simple changes to their household um, as well as their nutrition and and to things like their stress level it's, 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 i suppose it's zoning in on prevention rather than just dealing it dealing with it once it's there actually working to, to absolutely be... yeah absolutely the, the statistics are one in uh two um females and one in three males are going to get a cancer at some point in their life wow. so you know that's pretty scary odds. I don't wait. I do cancer prevention. And that's what I encourage everybody to do. So it's it's thinking about things like, yeah, re- reducing your chemical burden. And that's not just things that people think about, like um, alcohol and smoking, but also things about, you know, what chemicals are you putting on your skin? What chemicals are you cleaning your house with? What chemicals are you washing your laundry with? You know, like I mentioned, cookware, you know, Teflon, which is what's the coating on nonstick pans, is carcinogenic. You know, plastic containers that most people store their food in or buy their food from places like Marks and Spencer's contains something called BPA that's, that's an endocrine disruptor and is a known carcinogen. So it's about detoxifying your life. It's about detoxifying your environment. And these are all small baby changes that we can each make to be able to try and prevent. It's about, you know, where possible, eating organic food. It's about making sure you've got good amounts of phytonutrients in the form of fruits and vegetables. I mean, if the government did their five-a-day campaign, five-a-day is not enough. We need to be thinking of sort of nine portions of fruit and vegetables a day. That's much more with, you know, ideally sort of seven veg and two fruit. And you go, well, how are you going to do that? But you can do it by adding things into every meal and snack throughout the day, whether it be, you know, a veggie juice for breakfast, whether it be carrot sticks and hummus at snack time, whether it be putting a salad in with your 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 sandwich at, at lunchtime, you know, after after school or after work, piece of fruit and some nuts, and then with your evening meal, you know, say a chicken stir fry with loads of veg in it, you're easily going to make nine a day at that point. Fantastic. What, what about? I mean, because I'm I'm a, I mean, and I'm sure you'll agree for obvious reasons, but. I'm a huge fan of getting people to really focus on, and this goes for, for anything, you know, just general health, energy, testosterone levels, whatever, fat loss. Um, I'm huge on, on people like de-stressing and, and getting a decent night's kip. So what, what's your kind of recommendations for that? Sleep is so important. People don't realise how important it is. You know, we need to be having eight hours of sleep a night so that we can repair our body. It's absolutely vital. And stress is a big thing. And this is why, you know, I split my protocols into 
dietary recommendations, supplement recommendations, and lifestyle modifications. And, and I, you know, I put a big emphasis on lifestyle modifications, which includes relaxation, which includes sleep hygiene, which includes, you know, looking at the whole of the bigger picture, you know, incorporating meditation, incorporating yoga so that people are de-stressing their bodies. And you're right when you talked about hormones. I only did a lecture just yesterday on looking at, and I was specializing in male health. I've done another one. I think Kerry's listened to me on doing female health, where you actually look at the impact that stress can have on every hormone system within your body. So stress can have a knock-on effect over your thyroid gland, which can have a knock-on effect over your sex hormones. So we're seeing more and more people with sort of sex hormone imbalance, whether it be low testosterone, uh, which which therefore is causing them to have low muscle mass, which is then causing them to be more obese, or whether it be low sex hormones as in low estrogen or low progesterone. And you have to track back, and this is where the functional medicine model comes in, and you look at the bigger picture, you kind of look at their stress response, and you need to support their adrenal glands. Because actually, you know, you'll never support their, uh, correct their testosterone levels unless you've looked at what's driven that imbalance. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. I mean... To be fair, it's when we do our like our online plans or when we work one to one with people, we find that you know the S factor as we call it, which when we cover like stress, sunlight, and sleep, and sugar things like that, we we find that it's those lifestyle factors that people struggle with the most. I mean, people will follow the food plan, they'll stick to the the training regime, uh, yet after three or four weeks, they'll wonder why they're not getting results. And then you actually look at their sleep patterns, and and their sleep is atrocious. And trying to get people to zone in on that, de-stress and get a decent night's sleep is where I think most people have an issue. I mean, what what would you say? What are your tips to people to actually to enhance, you know, to promote a better night's sleep, you know, a better quality of sleep? Okay, first thing is to get those electrical devices, mobile phones, iPads, out of the bedroom. People are stimulated until they fall asleep, and that is not giving their body the opportunity to switch from sympathetic nervous system, which is this kind of on the go, on the go, on the go, to parasympathetic nervous system, which is when we rest and when we digest. So if they stay, you know, they've got their mobile phones next to their bed, they're just checking in on Facebook, Twitter accounts, whatever it is, and then they try and lie down, their body's going to continue to pump out high amounts of cortisol. So that's the first thing that I do. Second thing I do is talk to them about making sure that their room is in darkness when they go to sleep. Because we get a little message to the pineal gland in the brain to say it's dark outside, therefore we should go to sleep. That's overridden with electric lights, computers, etc., etc. So ideally, I get people to switch off all devices and then have a period of relaxation, whether that be go take a bath, whether that be burn some essential oils, whether that be, you know, light a candle or just sitting and talking. But, you know, get that TV off. Then get upstairs to bed, make sure the bedroom's in darkness, whether they use blackout blinds or whatever they use. And also making sure that their bedroom is clutter-free and a nice environment to be, a tranquil environment for them to be, to have that, that sleep. And also making sure that they've finished eating, you know, ideally two hours before they go to bed yeah. so that their digestive system is not, you know, churning away and their body can now aid restless sleep. So it's funny, when you mentioned about the TV, I was nodding at Matt because he always wants to watch TV at night rather than read. I'd prefer to read. But then when you mentioned the clutter in the bedroom, he's nodding at me because <laughs> I have far too many clothes and shoes just cluttering up the bedroom. So I think we've both got work to do there, haven't we? There you go. Well, if you, you make the bedroom clutter free, yeah. I'll, 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 I won't watch TV before bed. There we go. There you go. That's a deal, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The thing is, the reason I watch TV isn't because, I don't know, like I kind of 
rebel against the idea of not watching TV. You but find it relaxing, don't you? Yeah, because my, my mind is, is normally, you know, my mind's racing all the time, like with work and things like that. And I find that, that watching a, a TV show or a, a good film just really takes my mind off of it and actually does feel like it relaxes me. Whereas I've tried reading, but I just feel like it's my, my mind's still ticking over. You know, subconsciously, I'm not fully switching off from from work and going through things that, you know, I need to do or work that I've previously done. So is it that bad? It is because the TV is still a stressor to your body. It still encourages the production of cortisol. And, okay, if reading's not the right thing for you, maybe you need to embark on a different type of activity, like listening to some relaxing music or burning some candles. You know, you can't say, because we're all uniquely different, aren't we? So, yeah, reading might not be the right thing for you, Matt, but you could listen to some relaxing music or do some deep breathing exercises, and that might help your body to make that switch. Yeah, I'll, I'll try that. I will try that. I mean, I must admit, I mean, we're, we're actually following a, uh, we've got some online, we've got an online, couple of online training and nutrition plans going on right now. And uh, one of which is a 28 day plan. We call it like a fat loss kickstarter, which involves cutting out caffeine, all sugars, dairy, obviously amongst the uh, uh, the usual things. And something I have noticed massively since taking the caffeine out is my sleep is just amazing and I think it's it's a big one because we've actually had uh, one client didn't we who would happily cut out everything from his diet except he was adamant he had to keep coffee he was one his one savior and he was still was not getting the, the the results that he wanted until eventually he took the caffeine out didn't he and within five days he was sleeping like a baby so, yeah, so it's a massive, but you see, you tend to find it's the things that are the worse of people that they're most reluctant to give up. Yeah. yeah. Like that caffeine that. for him was like a security blanket. You know, you try taking a security blanket off a child and they're going to cry. It's a bit like that where he's concerned. Yeah. Right, Joe, so I've got a, a question for you because if I'm not mistaken, you've um, you've got a cookbook for kids, is that right? That's right, yeah. So tell us a bit more about that because I'm... I'm a huge fan of getting kids, obviously, to eat healthier food. And, and the conversation that we often have with people when they're on a, a plan that we've put them on is, oh, but what, what, what do I do about the kids or the family's food? And I'm always like, well, cook them the same food. Like, there's no reason why they should be eating any different to you. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's hear a little bit more about this book. Okay, well... Um... If I knew now what I knew then about writing a cookbook, I wouldn't have a cookbook. Um, That's the honest and the bottom line of it. What had happened was, you know, working with these children who um, you're trying to make radical dietary changes, you know, taking them off dairy, taking them off sugar, taking them off all refined carbohydrates. But what you tend to find is a lot of kids still want to be able to eat what kids want to eat. And what I wanted to do was prove to parents that, that, you know, and to support parents that you can still feed kids chicken nuggets, but they don't have to be full of rubbish. You know, you can make your own with an organic chicken breast and use organic eggs and make your own breadcrumbs and hay press and, and, and you can make chicken nuggets as quick as you can say jump in jet flash. Really doesn't take much time. So I started to put together a whole load of recipes and I kind of had them in like a loose leaf and emailed them out and, and all that sort of stuff. And when Alfie passed away, I went and did a bereavement visit to his parents and sat there and said, as a legacy to Alfie, I was going to publish it as a book. Um, it was long, hard slog because I didn't, like I said, I didn't realise how many edits. I think when I was editing it for the ninth time, I was we, about... We, we can fully off. relate to that. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, <laughs> 
but you know we did it and it's it's now fully published it's called recipes for life fighting back with food it's not just aimed at children but it's full of you know bakes and cakes and main courses and vegetarian dishes and starters that have all follow the principles so there's no no cow's milk dairy in any of them no refined sugars in any of them but that I want people to be able to sit there and say, I don't have to feed my child mung bean casserole yeah. just because I'm following this line because that's not achievable. You know, I know that kids want to be able to eat nice food and parents want to be able to provide that for their kids and I just want to support them in doing that. So whenever we get a child that's diagnosed, we send out a cookbook. Obviously, they're also on, on the market for anybody else to, to buy them through, either through Amazon or for, through the Alphys Trust website. Um, and it's just really, yeah, it's showing people that you can you can eat good quality food and not compromise, you know, in in the principles that I've put in place. That's brilliant. Just say the name of the cookbook one more time because I know people will want to buy it. Yeah, it's called Recipes for Life: Fighting Back with Food, and it can be bought through the Alfis Trust website, which is www.alfistrust.com, and it's brilliant. on the merchandise page. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. So, Joe, you mentioned earlier about a, uh, a webinar yesterday on men's health. Um, <laughs> yeah. And coincidentally, I had some questions on that because I was kind of uh, preparing my breakfast, but I couldn't help but... We should just explain, sorry, it was a, I was listening to the webinar yeah. and then Matt was eavesdropping on the webinar. <laughs> I was picking up on some... I was actually saying, please listen to this because you will, you know, you'll gain so much from it, but you were hungry. I was making making my breakfast. I can't interrupt a man when he's making his breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, um, and there was something I found really interesting because I think both myself and Keris can relate to this, but as it was a men's health webinar, I'm going to relate it to me. Um, And there was one of the case studies that you mentioned about a guy that owned his own gym and and obviously stress being a huge issue for him you know this is obviously a guy that's in the fitness industry but clearly wasn't very healthy due to his stress levels and I was wondering if you could um just talk a little bit more about that because I thought it was really interesting yeah I mean this is a guy who I met um he contacted me wanted me to support his gym it's a a brilliant local independent gym in the Coventry area um he's very into his own fitness was training he was over training he was training six days a week um very physically fit low uh fat mass high muscle mass you know to look at you wouldn't have questioned there was anything wrong with this guy starts to ring alarm bells because he's getting recurrent colds so that's always a bit of an alarm bell that makes me say well what's going on with the immune system and what do i need to do to support that immune system so anyway i sent him away for an adrenal stress test because i really wanted to say you know i can see this guy's stressed he's working seven days a week you know what it's like when you're self-employed and you're you know you're trying to maintain a, a business um sent him away for adrenal stress test and it came back that his adrenal glands were absolutely depleted you know they were really 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 flat now that was going to have a knock-on effect over his immune system and would have a knock-on effect over other hormone systems within his body like i said it can impact your testosterone levels it can impact your your thyroid hormones which then has other knock-on effects Um, and they're the sort of things that we're seeing people with all of the time now, it was when he got those results in sort of black and white, or red, yellow, and blue, as they genuinely send them through, that he actually sort of listened to what I had to say. And, you know, I said to him I wanted him to cut back on his exercise. I only wanted him exercising three days a week. You know, he needed to make lifestyle modifications from drinking daily. I, you know, I took it out, so he was only drinking at weekends. 
um, followed the dietary recommendations, followed a supplement regime, because he could see in, in, in on this piece of paper that I'd given to him that his adrenal glands weren't in a good place. Uh, and where he's concerned, he's actually got a much younger, much younger, a very pretty girlfriend who's, who's <laughs> less than half of his age. And fertility was something that, despite the fact this guy was 50 at the time, fertility was something that was still on the cards for him. And he has, in fact, you know, he followed the plan, still working with me, and his girlfriend's pregnant now. So oh, I don't amazing. know whether if we awesome. done this, whether he wouldn't have got pregnant, but I'm telling you that this guy was at high risk of a chronic disease in the future driven by stress. Wow. So I have to ask what his response was when you told him you wanted him to, to train less. It, yeah. it was really hard. I'm sure you can imagine that somebody yeah. who, who who it was almost like a drug for him training. Yeah, but that, that's um, the that's what we, we see, see a lot, lot don't we? Yeah, yeah we he found it really difficult. But I sat with him and we talked about well, which which were the exercise sessions that were most important to him. And he really liked this one kettlebell class that they had a kettlebell instructor. So we picked that one out, and he wanted to do one circuit training, and he wanted to do one boxing training, and that's what we highlighted. And you know, he he, he completely honoured that. I think he was kind of itchy feet for a few weeks but yeah. he, you know he honored that completely good on him and what about um because what we have a lot of people who um often come to us but they've entered a marathon so they've already committed to something that's going to involve quite intense training and with you being sort of working in a gym with people like that what do you tend to recommend to support you know sort of overtrain we would call it overtraining really um but they have to do it for short periods of time before an event or or a fight if it's if it's a boxer yeah yeah, I've, I've got quite a lot of boxes on mine because that gym is actually a boxing gym, so I've got uh, quite a few boxes on my caseload. I think it's about making sure that their nutrition is absolutely optimal and that they are repairing their body post-exercise. Because when we exercise, we produce so many free radicals, which can potentially trigger disease status, including cancer. So there's no point... You know, you get people who are very fit but very unhealthy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I'm sure you see that in, in your line of... What it's more important is about is, you know, repairing that damage post the exercise and making sure they do take in high amounts of antioxidants, making sure they replenish their muscle mass with certain amino acids and, and um, you know, really focus on on repairing and maximising the training and repairing so that they don't cause any damage. Let's take a, a typical kind of gym goer, maybe three times a week for about an hour, What's like a, a typical kind of pre-post-workout nutrition that you might suggest? So let's assume they're training with weights. Yep, so it's about making sure that they've got some complex carbohydrates going in before the training exercise to give their body the, the fuel that it needs. And that post-workout, they need to make sure that they've got good quality protein going in there. And I don't just mean a protein shake off the off the shelf that's full of artificial sweeteners, et cetera, et cetera. So it's about, you know, replenishing that muscle mass, making sure their electrolytes are well-balanced, um, either through supplementation or even things like adding in coconut water, which is an amazing electrolyte balance. So, you know, I've got some, some of my guys that I work with sweat so much. Well, can you imagine how much electrolytes they're going to be losing when they're sweating at that, you know, to that extreme? So what if you was dealing with an individual who uh, had quite a substantial amount of body fat to lose? Yeah. Um, how, how would you adapt the pre-post-workout protocols? Well, I'd stimulate, I'd go down a similar sort of protocol as in making sure that they've, they've got fuel beforehand and, 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 and repair afterwards. But, you know, they're... 
it's about portion sizes of fuel beforehand. And I think that's where a lot of people are delusional over how much, you know, if I say to them you need a small amount of carbohydrates before, what one person's idea of small amount of yeah. carbohydrates <laughs> to another. But also we need to be thinking about the intensity of the exercise. You know, if, if you're not doing a massive uh, gym workout session, you know, I'm just talking about sort of somebody just popping into the gym and doing 45-minute sessions themselves, they don't need to carb load before they go to the gym. People are under this illusion that, you know, and it's, it depends what people are doing. You know, I go to the gym and I see lots of people standing on the treadmill walking. You know, they try, they drive to the gym to walk <laughs> on a treadmill slower than you'd walk down the street. And yeah. I can't quite figure that out. Well, they don't need to be taken on board a big bowl of pasta before they do that. Yeah. And what's your take on, because um, I've heard different recommendations about shakes, because um, I have always recommended shakes of, of certain quality, so like um, pharmaceutical grade shakes and, and sort of pure whey and things like that, but I've heard um, sort of recommendations that for people that are significantly overweight, they don't have the insulin management to take on nutrients um, from a shake, as in it's going to spike insulin too much. What's your thoughts on that? actually do use um shakes even on weight management and like you i use i use um you know good quality nutraceuticals and i tend to go for ones that actually if it's somebody who's overweight who will will aid them to balance their blood sugars yeah um and what i find that sometimes with shakes particularly in overweight people it's a bit like putting them on a training wheel it's teaching their bodies you know to take in the right amount of nutrients at times throughout the day so it might be something i use on a short-term period so i'm just thinking that i'm in the middle of running a 30-day weight loss challenge with with um about 130 practitioners all around the uk so i'm managing them so that they can do the program and they then can go out and roll it out with their clients you know and we've we've got protein shakes in in that protocol we're using it yet really to teach people how to balance their blood sugars more effectively by making sure they have got high dose protein going on throughout the day Fantastic, and that's but that's not available to the public. That's for practitioners. Uh, that's that's for practitioners yeah. to be able to to then roll out with their client base. I'd highly recommend if there are any practitioners listening that they do sign up for those. And you do a detox as well, don't you? That's right. Yes, we do detox. a metabolic detox as well, which again is teaching practitioners how to roll it out with their clients. It's really good fun. We do it as sort of like a community event. So it's it's run at certain periods through the year. The next one's the end of February, um, and. Um, we take people through. I run it. I do it with them. They, we use a Facebook community group so that they're well supported all the way through it. It's amazing how many even nutritional therapists need to support their bodies and how many nutritional therapists are really unhealthy. Yeah, no. We, we well, in, fact, in fact, I think when you done uh, the your bio signature with Charles Poliquin, didn't he say that like personal trainers and nutritionists are probably like some of the unhealthiest people out there. Yeah, because due, I think it's the like, hours, yeah. hours that you work and I think that you do take on a certain amount of other people's stress um, as well. You must find, I mean, I can't imagine being you. I'm just sat here thinking uh, uh, it must be, I mean, you must have hundreds of clients as well because obviously you've been going for so many years. How do you sort of, after, you know, seeing, I don't know, was it would it be seven or eight clients a day? How do you detach from that when you get home at night? It can be up to 13. That's my record in oh, any wow. one day. Um, I make sure that I, A, am very physically well in myself because if I'm not physically well, then I can't support the people's wellness. And also I've found strategies, because you're right, I mean, especially working with some of the client groups that I work with, if I don't, um, if I don't uh, look after myself and support myself, then I can't support them. And what I mean by that is finding strategies to almost um, put barriers 
uh, around myself. So protection. Yeah. So that I'm, although I'm listening to their story and I'm embarking on their journey with them, I'm not living it for them. Because if I did that, then they would wear me down and then I would not be good for the rest of my clients. So, you know, I found methods of self-protection, um, which includes sort of, you know, working from my office, having time to process on the way out of work so that then I've, I've done my processing by the time I get home. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm able to support my clients even better. Wow. And what, oh, what do you do to relax then? So how would you, do you sort of have dance classes or? <laughs> uh, I like going to the gym. That to me is something, a means of sort of relaxation. And I like, yeah, just to have some downtime. Yeah, yeah. just relaxing. But if you can yeah. hear that racket in the background, but uh, Hamish is alive and kicking right now. And he's, 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 he's got a new toy, which he's just flinging around the living room. <laughs> just, just so you know what the noise is. <laughs> Um, one question, though, um, I think we're just coming towards the end now, Joe. but one um, thing I wanted you to try and explain, um, I've mentioned um, SNPs before on a podcast, and um, I'm not great with, with analogies, but I tried to explain it that um, basically SNPs are like if you had a car and then basically went under the bonnet and with a pair of scissors just cut a wire. Um, so the car would still maybe run, but not optimally. And I was shot down for this analogy because... Um, as Matt pointed out, a car probably wouldn't run if you just cut a wire under the bonnet. But could you explain to people a little bit about SNPs um, and sort of how we were gen- genetically predisposed to disease? Yeah. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I love genetics. I, I get quite, I get quite um, carried away when it comes to looking at people's genetic profiling. A genetic SNP or genetic polymorphism refers to a um, a imbalance within one of the processes within the body so let's talk about detoxification SNPs so we all have different processes that in order for us to detoxify different chemical agents that we come into contact with whether they're agents we produce within our body like estrogen um, or whether they be agents we come into contact with from the outside environment for example uh, exhaust fumes so each toxin requires different processing throughout the body and what can happen with a genetic SNP is that process is not working as effectively as one would hope it to. So the analogy I use, and, and Matt, you might still shoot me down, is <laughs> I refer to it as a, uh, a canal. So think of a canal where you've got a lot of water running through a canal, and then you have gates throughout the canal. Now, if that gate is wide open, the water runs through really smoothly. However, as soon as you start to close that gate, you're still trying to push through the water, but you've got a smaller gap for it to be processed through. Now, think of that like a genetic polymorphism. It's not saying you don't have that lock at all. What it's saying is that your gate is not open as effectively as possible. Now, by doing it like this, we can do two things to support our clients. The first one is we can minimize the amount of water against the gate, therefore minimizing the amount of toxins against the gate, i.e. not eating barbecued food, because we need to process the char the char grilled food. And then the next thing we can do is use different nutraceuticals to support the opening of that gate to its maximum capacity. So it's not saying it's not there, but for some of us that have genetic polymorphisms, that gate might be only open a very tiny bit and the flow just can't get through. So our job as nutritional therapists is A, we can ascertain what where the SNPs are. 
whether they be in your ability to detoxify, whether they be in your neurological profiling, whether they be in your immune profiling. And then we can do is minimize the, the flow against it and maximize the opening. How does that sound for an analogy? That's much better, definitely. Makes much more sense. <laughs> um, and you can be, you test for these, don't you? You can run tests on clients. Um, yeah, absolutely. Show you them can where do they're it using saliva are. swabbing. Yeah. And you can look at all of their genetic profiling. So you can have a look if people are at more risk of certain diseases. And you might say, well, what use is that knowing? So, for example, you can actually look at if somebody's got a risk of Alzheimer's disease. Well, that actually gives us loads of information because if we have that knowledge, Knowledge, then what we can do is work on disease prevention with that person. So, for example, somebody who's got a APOE gene, uh, which puts you at more risk of um, Alzheimer's, for that individual, you might want to support their detoxification. You might want to ascertain if they've got high amounts of aluminium in their body. And if they have, you might want to support detoxification. That's amazing. It's that's just the future for me of, of where health is gonna is gonna go towards. I it's so exciting. Like I say, I'm genetic mad. <laughs> Joe, I've got a quick question for you. Because um, I just referring back to the um, the men's health webinar and just men's health generally. Um, you know, I, I'm always a big fan of like trying to talk blokes up to becoming anabolic beasts that are just full of testosterone and can build muscle you know in a split second <laughs> so what would you what tips would you give to to guys out there for for, for epic testosterone levels okay so it's a, about avoiding what can cause testosterone to be decreased which is stress which is too much estrogen which can come from you know using plastics in uh, plastic water bottles, food wrapped in plastics, you know, chemical exposure. So that, that's all about reducing it. And then it's about maximizing production um, by making sure we've got the right amount of bu right building blocks in place, taking on board the right amount of protein, let's say, the right phytonutrients. And then there's numerous nutraceuticals and herbals, because I'm a herbalist as well, that can support hormones looking at levels of free testosterone, which is the active hormone, and reducing the amount of bound hormone via reducing sex hormone binding globulin, which, which is what binds the testosterone. And when it's bound, it's not active, it can't be used. So, you know, you can use herbs to, to reduce sex hormone binding globulin. I suppose that most of that would actually apply to women looking to balance hormones as well. Absolutely, kind of yeah. I mean, you just caught, Matt, you caught the end of a, a, a male health webinar I did, but I mean, I lecture in female health as well, and you know, it's exactly the same. So many women are, are in a state of estrogen dominance um, because of other things that are causing, whether it be external estrogens they're taking in from the outside world, whether it be internal estrogens because they're producing too much and because they're not detoxifying enough, you know, there's many different factors. And this is, um, I mean, a lot of uh, listeners do um, sort of email us about things like PCOS and fibroids and, and all of these are sort of caused by endocrine disruption and we often tell them to look at lifestyle, um, you know, and nutrition as well. But they often, you know, they're not told anything like that by a GP who will, the solution tends to be something like the pill. Yeah, absolutely. Is, and that's just masking it. That's like, yeah. my, that's like my antidepressant for my depression. Yeah. All that's going to do is mask it. Yeah. And one, I have one um, final question from me. Matt might have some more. But um, what do you recommend for women, um, you know, as an alternative to the pill? Um, 
we sort of talk about doing natural contraception, so using things like temperature testing. Do you have any sort of advice for women who obviously don't want to get pregnant but don't wish to take the pill because of the effect it has on hormones? Yeah, absolutely. There's numerous methods that you can use for natural fertility, from using LH sticks to to uh, monitor ovulation, temperature checking, like you said, mucus checking, and actually doing a combination of them all is, is a really great method. And then, of course, you've got barrier methods as well. Yeah, fantastic. I like it. Right. <laughs> Joe, we are going to wrap it up there, I think. I mean, thing is, when it comes to these kind of subjects like men's health, you know, PCOS, cancer, these are all huge subjects which I'm sure we could talk about for, for hours on end. But yeah, and we, everybody in some way, don't Yeah, 100%. And no doubt we'll cover them again like in future podcasts. But we, we try and keep the podcast around an hour, and we're at that point now, so... We'll say a huge thank you, Joe. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you. And, um, yes, I mean, Keris has met you before and, and bigged you up big time, and, and I can see why. So, yeah, thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. Do you want to let um, listeners know where they can find out a bit more about you as well, sort of your website? Yeah, my website is www.embracingnutrition.co.uk. And are you speaking anywhere in the next few months? Because I know even sort of at CAM convent, uh, conferences or anything like that, that people can come and listen to you. Yeah, I've got a couple of Nutri presentations lined up that I'm going to be speaking on. I'm just going to go out to Ireland and do a tour out in Ireland. Oh, nice. If you've got any Irish listeners, they might get the, you know, they've not had the luxury of me out there yet. Fantastic. Whereabouts is that? Is that, have you got a venue? Uh, that's or... in all parts of Ireland, uh, um, Dublin, Galloway and somewhere else. But this will be all, all be on your website, right? Yes, Info absolutely. Info for that. Excellent. Excellent. I fancy a trip to Ireland. <laughs> oh, we were meant to go, weren't we? And then we had to cancel it. But anyway, Joe, yeah, thank you so much. It's yeah, been a pleasure. Um, awesome. I'm sure our listeners absolutely love that. Um, like I said, we'll put some stuff in the show notes, uh, websites, uh, the book information, etc. And uh, we will see you over in episode number 12. Yeah. Thank Bye. you, Joe. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.